Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to invite you to a rerun of one of my favorite books we've ever reviewed on the show. It felt a bit disingenuous after expounding on the hundreds of books that we've done and especially the dozen or so books we've done for horrifying classics without rehashing at least one excellent episode from our horrifying classics series of yore. So today, as you can see from the title, we are rehashing, re-looking at uh, Barbara Borland's Fake Like Me. It's a book that we read a couple of years ago in Horrifying Classics when I was a senior in undergrad. I really enjoyed this episode when I was preparing it, when I was recording it. Um, it's a very intense book. It's a well-written book. Barbara Borland is such a star writer um, in my mind. She's a relatively new writer, has published, as far as I know, three books so far, working on her fourth, which is coming out quite soon. Um, we'll be reviewing her third book in November, um, so this month, a couple weeks, we're going to be reviewing the, fourth, the Force of Such Beauty, which is her third book out. Fake Like Me um, is her second book, and we reviewed her first book that she published, which is called I'll Eat When I'm Dead, in January, February of this year. Um, so this year is shaping up to be quite a <laughs> Barbara Borland devoted year, um, but I'm here for it. This is also an episode that um, I remember enjoying the process of recording so much, and that's something that whenever I look back on the 250 plus episodes that we've published on the show, something that I really admire and enjoy about a lot of the episodes. There's only a few episodes where I can pinpoint them and I'm like, yeah, I was, I was really tired there or, you know, that book was really difficult to review for X or Y reason. Um, this book is, it has a lot of like sort of adults, not controversial, but serious themes, um, especially with regard to self-harm, that kind of thing, and the art world. So there's a bit of a disclaimer here so that you all can acclimate yourselves to the world of Fake Like Me. Uh, it's kind of a thriller, actually, and it's about an artist who works in the XL, so she's working on these massive paintings. She's using a ton of different incredible materials. The paintings really came to life for me when I was reading. They really jumped out of the page. And she's working on paintings that have to do with all of these virtues slash non-virtues, so like greed, etc. And as far as I remember, I have not read this book <laughs> since we reviewed it, to be completely honest, although it's one of my favorites that I've read in the last five years. Um, there's this mystery at the center of the book, and as you listen to this episode today, I will hopefully, very tactfully, <laughs> unravel this mystery. We'll see. I'll be listening to the episode alongside you all. Um, and I remember when the mystery kind of became apparent, when things started to really unwind at the end, there was just the sense of relief and the sense of, wow, how well done was this plot. So there's a lot of things going for this book, plot, pacing, um, the integration of these 
almost historical components and the discussion of art um, and the discussion of uh, women and beauty more generally. Those are things that I found correlate between all three of uh, Barbara Borland's books that I've read. Um, and it's all in all just a really, really lovely read and something that I hope to revisit soon and something I hope you all would visit as we kick off our belated but still coming horrifying classics series for 2023. Enjoy. Welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to our spooktastic programming for the month of October. That's right, Horrifying Classics 2021. This year's theme, Contemporary Horror, aims to introduce notable horror novels from the last few years, especially debut novels, which may one day become horrifying classics. Today's horrifying classic contemporary horror pick, Fake Like Me by Barbara Borland, can only be described as a thriller. While longer than many of the novels we have read for this series over the years, it is expertly paced enough for it to read itself. I enjoyed this book from a reader perspective more than I have enjoyed a book in a long time, which is high praise because we are already some 30 books into the year. Let's begin. Pacing. I'm going to start out with pacing, even before the plot summary, I know, because pacing is the one element that stands out in particular about this novel from the retrospective viewpoint of having read it. I mentioned last week how I've read some 200 pagers recently that feel like 450 pagers and vice versa, and I thought that might have something to do with the density and volume of information in the books, the writing style being the main culprit of those two, for example, with dialogue being less dense in a way than description. And we get into the full discussion of that in our last Horrifying Classics episode, which is linked on the front page of our website right now. It's linked everywhere, so you can definitely take a listen if that interests you. Somehow, this book ends up delivering tons of information with a high density, to an extent, we'll talk about it, and an overall quick, digestible, readable, approachable pacing. And my question here was how? 
So in order to get to the bottom of what's going on with Barbara Bowen's pacing, I picked a random passage from the book. This is a book, this is a passage rather that I bookmarked, so I evidently really liked it in some way or another. We'll discover how. Uh, it's on page 75, and I'm going to read two paragraphs here, a little more than two paragraphs from the top of the page. Quote, whether we are pasting photos of our parents into the gesso or not, all artists are of course doing the same thing. We are burying our past selves within the work, pieces of which rise to the surface without our permission like bodies in a flood. I think oil painters are the worst, that we shovel the most blank onto the canvas. But not everybody has a shovel. Watercolor painters, for example, aren't adding or shoveling, but rather removing the occlusions of what we perceive as reality to expose what lies underneath, like wiping fog off a car window. Pencils burnish, create an impression, a fraudage. Ink is a violent stain. Charcoal, a cloudy exhale. Acrylic, a plastic advertisement. Photography, a viewpoint. Sculpture is architecture. They're all different, these mediums of representation. I started working with oil because it takes the longest to dry. Some of my paintings are so thick that they won't be dry for a thousand years. This was, strictly speaking, my biggest problem. In the morning, the air was so humid that the gesso looked like it was sweating, though I knew it was dry. Panic rose beneath my ribs. There was no time for this kind of humidity. Even liquid couldn't stand up to this weather, not with the quantities of paint I was using. If the first layer was applied under these conditions, the rest would be affected and the final product could be melted, unstable, even after months of drying, months I didn't have. That exact quality I was so attracted to, that heavy, damp, blank shoveling, it was a condition I could no longer afford. I needed a solution today." Unquote. So even in this, that was two paragraphs, literally less than a page, about probably 90% of one page. And you can get a sense for how much information Borland is able to pack into the every page, really, in her writing. And I think that's what I like, is there's so much information a lot of it comes through the perspective of the character and it's really the main character, this young female artist who works in the Excel format and she's in a predicament which we'll talk about during the plot summary. But we're looking at how the main character is tracking information, how she's tracking not only some conversational moves that are happening around her but the moves in the background of the plot that are happening to her. Part of that in this passage is the humidity and her working through the humidity and remembering things and trying to recall useful information to solve this problem. And we're looking sort of at these blank facts, the humidity, the blank purpose of art that that's so interesting that we get into here and it's really the the web that Borland is able to weave between all of these different layers of information we've got the surface information the humidity again 
but then there's this sort of philosophical discussion about the meaning of art, and then there's the main character's thoughts and feelings below that, and all three of them are being expressed in varying intensities throughout the page. And that's something that I find to be so interesting, and it propels the plot, the plot forward so well. In terms of the density, Density in any work is always changing, right? It changes every sentence. So it's it's rare that there's a Cormac McCarthy moment, like we talked about last time, where there's a book that's mostly dialogue, a book that's mostly description, and then a book that stratifies the two styles. That's so rare, and that's why McCarthy's All the Pretty, po All the Pretty Horses series <laughs> is such a great example of looking at density is they just do that so in such an exemplary way. And in this passage, there's a lot that Borland is doing with punctuation, which I love. I think as a reader, it's so interesting to see authors play around not only with the rules of punctuation, but also, also with different types and styles of punctuation. And I think these longer sentences that she's getting, they're really quite long in some cases, four or five lines, and yet they're punctuated such that the reader has clear markers throughout, you know, every four or five words that give the reader a sense of what's going on in each part of that sentence. And that's something that I super admire that she's able to do. Not every author can do that. I'm just gonna pull a couple examples from the page. I think oil painters are the worst, M dash, that we shovel the most blank onto the canvas, unquote, but M dash, not everybody has a shovel, unquote. So we have a couple M dash examples near the beginning here. There's lots of semicolons. Um, when she starts listing the narrator, pencils burnish, create an impression, a fraudage, semicolon, ink is a violent stain, semicolon. Charcoal, comma, cloudy exhale, semicolon. I'm not catching all the punctuation here, but you can get a sense for how, how the language is signposted throughout these paragraphs, and it makes it so readable, so digestible. And that is definitely one strategy that Borland uses so effectively to get as much information as she needs to into the text without overwhelming the reader and without slowing down the reading process, right? When we have such digestible chunks of information to get through, even if it's dense at some points, even if it's a lot of information, that uh, type of quick sentence, short sentence uh, structure really makes a difference in terms of how quickly we're able to read it. And then at the end of these two longer paragraphs, there's a one line, I needed a solution today, unquote. And that is also extremely effective in that we have these big chunks of text and then suddenly this stream of consciousness type of commentary, it's almost like the narrator is bringing us back to the retrospective uh, viewpoint that they're coming from. Almost like we got lost for a minute in the reverie of these two highly informative paragraphs for us, um, and yet we need to come back to the main narrative and the main story, and 
Borland is able to do that by pulling this line out and giving it its own line, giving it its own space rather than enmeshing it within a paragraph. So that's pacing within that one passage. If we look at pacing within the broad scale, in this book at least, we do, as I mentioned earlier, move with the main character and move with her thoughts throughout the book. And that can also partially explain the quickness with which the narrative moves along. If you think about it, thoughts are the quickest form of communication, albeit we are communicating with ourselves, but the, thought, the language in thoughts uh, there's a lot of different linguistic theories behind that, which we won't totally get into, but there's a sense, right, that there's a similar amount of information in thoughts, uh, as in, for example, speech, and yet it moves so quickly. <laughs> you can have a million thoughts a day. There's hundreds of thousands of thoughts a day that we have. So this internal monologue style ends up going quicker, I think, in that regard. If not in actuality, as in actual reading time, then at least psychologically somehow. We're adopting for a minute the mind of a reader, and that's something that I've talked about incessantly before, is how this ability to adopt someone else's mindset, this ability to create a space for empathy for a main character in a fiction book is what makes fiction great is you're expanding your empathy and you're expanding your understanding of other humans experiences something i found interesting with this line of thoughts and moving with the main character's thoughts is that thoughts always move quicker than the reality around them. So there's sort of this constant game between thoughts and reality of tag and then catch up and then catch up and then tag. So there's a point in the narrative where the main character's apartment catches on fire and destroys all of her paintings. And there's this distinct reversal where finally her thoughts are catching up to the reality that's in them and that becomes a theme for a lot of the rest of the book whereas before her thoughts are reacting but also foreshadowing the reality that we see so it's a really interesting dichotomy or relationship there between thought and reality and i think that was something for me that was so rewarding to track during this novel and during my reading experience was how her thoughts were in a relationship in a sense with the world and finally i thought a lot about suspense because this is a thriller this is classic thriller there's some like ghost elements sometimes but it couldn't really be that this is a total thriller there's um no other way to put it it's it's kind of a mystery maybe as well but um really to me the book is carried by the plot by the characters by the writing it's such a good book so 
it fits in the thriller genre. We're not going to get into genre this episode. Um, but I did think about suspense, and that's definitely one component of genre. So suspense, uh, according to Malcolm Gladwell, is the ability for an author to play with a reader's expectations around time. And I've always just loved that quote, been struck by it. Malcolm Gladwell, as you all know if you've been listening for a while, is one of my top favorite authors. And I think he's so right in that definition of suspense, and even if we apply it here to this book, the reader never knows what Borland is going to do with any one given piece of this mystery. And it's their suspense is constant in that regard, where there's the superficial plot going on, but then there's this undercurrent of a plot that's also simultaneously happening. And that's the mystery of the whole novel that sort of guides us along in a really fantastic way. The word spannend in German comes to mind again with this book. Plot summary. Finally, the plot summary at long last. <laughs> so there's a New York artist, she's a female artist, she's going to art school, and we get this first scene of her that's so distinct and so well written, where it's this girl, she's like a sophomore in college, she's going down from the art school into the city and going to a gallery or rather like event showing from one of the members of Pine City, which is an art group, and that member is named Carrie Logan. Carrie Logan becomes a source of inspiration, an idol for this young artist who is our narrator, but she has a very peculiar career. In the first scene with her, there's a description that really sticks out and sticks through the rest of the novel, which is that Carrie kind of has the ability to captivate a room without doing anything. That's just her natural state of being, is to be able to captivate it and capture people's attention. And Carrie makes these sculptures of bodies in various, it's creepy, various states of decay, various um, afflictions, for example, and that's her art is the ability to make these bodies that are so realistic looking that they are so disturbing and captivating and they're very very they become famous very fast very notable artist and then abruptly she stops making the bodies and she starts having a performance career where she just it's it's classic 70s performance art where she goes and she doesn't sleep for three days and she stays in the gallery for people to watch her that kind of stuff so there's this distinct shift within her career alongside all of this happening our artist our narrator graduates school and starts painting in the excel format really at the advice of carrie and she ends up really trying to make it in New York. She gets an artist's studio that's big enough for her Excel work 
and she lives there. She like outlives all of her roommates in that studio. Not that her roommates die, but they leave. And so she gets this amazing studio by herself and it's not exactly legal or safe, but it is an artist's studio. And Carrie and this artist sort of live parallel lives, at least in the sense that the author finds meaningful, which is that Carrie is carving the pathway for this artist to also have a following and success one day, as in Carrie is doing it first. And there's a lot of similarities between Carrie and our narrator. They have the exact same body type, for example, all of that. Really, what I liked about the plot and the nitty-gritty of the plot was that Borland was so able to capture the instability and the mental state within the situation of a struggling artist so well. Within the situation of a woman painter who is trying to, or rather is doing, her paintings in the Excel format and really doesn't have any precedence for it. So our artist, our narrator, does a couple of big shows. She starts getting more notoriety as these shows go on. Her first show is called Ona Titel in German and it's it's bad. She doesn't name any of the paintings and it was it's the start, you know, it's it's important in that regard. And there's two more shows. There's a collection um, for example, where she does a painting called Hair Money, which details all of the money that she's put in over the years to dyeing her hair pink, and she has this like distinctive champagne uh, blush bubblegum type pink hair. And then there's another series uh, called with a bunch of paintings that have the same word twice, so tomato tomato is one of them. Um, and I'm not sure how it's supposed to be said, that there is kind of a joke in the book about, oh, that's how you say it. <laughs> so she starts doing more shows, and those two shows are just examples off of the top of my head. She starts doing more shows in the XL format, starts getting more notoriety, and she finally hits it big, and she starts to do a show called Rich, Ugly, Old Maids, and these are essentially the seven virtues um, you know, obedience, chastity, and she's working through her Catholic background and the background of the kind of person, the kind of woman that she's supposed to be, and letting that past go in a very, I think, cathartic, but in a very major way. The kinds of materials, for example, that she uses on these paintings are extreme. She uses precious gems, she uses like these amazing like plasticky kind of gessos. Just the description of the art, I don't know how Borland was able to do this, but the art is so clear in your mind. When you look at the individual aspects of, paint, of the painting in the, in the book, but also the whole on the whole, um, just it's an amazing thing to be able to describe works of art that don't exist to that extent. And she's nearly done with this series. It's like a seven or eight painting series, as I said. She's nearly done. Huge paintings. Yeah, months and months, almost years to dry. She's been working on this forever. And she's 
uh, put all of her money into this. She's put everything she has into this. And there's only one painting that's left to be done when her loft burns down because her neighbor below her leaves on, I think, a soldering iron and the whole place burns down. So this narrator loses everything and goes through that very painful process of losing these paintings and having two plus years of work completely destroyed. Her entire livelihood goes up in flames. All she has really is her camera, her notebook, her artist notebook, which becomes a really important symbol that unfortunately we won't have time to talk about today. And she ends up couching it for a while and, you know, essentially like not having literally any clothes or anything like that. And she eventually finds a way to get to Pine City, which Pine City, the art group, has become by this point mega famous and they bought an abandoned resort type situation and they made it into an artist's retreat and it's in upstate New York. So what our artist does is goes and takes a place at Pine City. She finds a particular uh, essentially like sponsor almost patron and that patron is able to get her into Pine City. It's kind of a serendipitous occurrence. Um, and then the real desperation comes out. And I think in this part, it's the most raw and the part where it reveals the most about her relationship to art and her ideas about art. And Pine City is really spooky. <laughs> The other members of Pine City, especially this guy named Tyler, are confrontational. They're not very mature at first, and it gets to be a sticky situation quite quickly. There really isn't a studio for her to work in, apparently, at first. Um, and then she runs into her friend, who isn't really a friend, and this friend is like rich and has a house right across from the Pine City gallery situation. And so things get essentially just bad and worse very quickly where she realizes, okay, now I have this person who has made me feel terrible, terrible about myself my entire life because she's richer and better at whatever than I am or has more success than I am without working as hard kind of situation. This person is now living in my immediate vicinity. I have a, an unworkable situation, no money to make my paintings over again, which I need to make seven to eight paintings. And I told my agent that I only needed to paint one over again because she was supposed to have put her paintings in storage and she didn't. So it becomes a huge situation where she has to go undercover basically in order to paint her entire series over again. And she has to do that with just with her notes, with the notes that she took down while she was painting them the first time. So there's just a lot going on. Um, and on top of that all, there's the undercurrent, like I said, of Carrie, Carrie Logan, who dies uh, 
in the years before this artist en ends up making it to Pine City, Carrie Logan is everywhere. She's literally in the woodwork. She literally has written her name um, in, you know, like the closet woodwork. And it has to do with the big reveal, uh, her actual name and things like this. But Carrie's everywhere. However, slowly, the work starts again. Uh, this artist starts to develop a relationship with one of the members of Pine City who was involved with Carrie Logan, interestingly. Um, and so there's really like an element of everything in this book. Like there's elements of romance, there's elements of like the spookiness, there's elements of thriller, obviously. It's a book about the art world which I find to be so fascinating and so cool. And there's great character development, there's friends, and we get to learn about the author's past and her past with this friend that she runs into. So there's just a lot going on in that regard, and there's a lot uh, to that this discussion will leave out necessarily. So she starts work again, and she's working and working and working like long days with these huge paintings and these perceptions on the surface about Tyler, about Tyler's relationship with Carrie, about the other's relationship with Carrie, and uh, Carrie's relationship with the gallery, the gallery's relationship with um, the Pine City group, they kind of come to a head near the end and they meet their parallel realities, meaning that the signs did not denote what the, our narrator thought they denoted this whole time. And at the end, this is the big spoiler alert, so skip forward 30 seconds if you do not want to hear the spoiler of this amazing mystery thriller novel. Carrie was actually an actress that Pine City hired because Pine City, the group, the four of them, were Carrie Logan. They did her entire art career. They made the bodies together. So they hired an actress to play the part of the of Carrie Logan at the gallery. And eventually the secret got too big and it started to become fraudulent. They started to become many, many issues. So they tried to cut Carrie off, this girl who was playing Carrie at least, and she had a different name. Um, and she decided, no, I'm still an artist. So she decides I'm going to essentially go out on my own and have my own career. So that's why there was this distinct cut or distinct shift in her art career was because uh, she goes out on her own and her performance career was distinctively... A lot of people thought it was worse than her art career for, I think, obvious reasons. Um, and there were questions, of course, about why she stopped making the sculptures when she was clearly so talented about them, but yeah, Carrie Logan was a collective, not an individual, which of course shatters the narrative's worldview because Carrie was, and still maintains for the narrator, this image of someone who is paving the way for her in the art world and doing things on the XL and unapologetically and as a woman. Um, and again, setting the space up for people like the narrator. 
So this whole secret about Carrie comes out and our artist replicates Carrie's final work. So there's a notebook that the artist finds about Carrie's final work, which is her suicide uh, taped, essentially a taped like drowning. And uh, the artist is able to fraudulently replicate that. And there's this final gallery showing with all of Carrie's artwork and uh, a showing of the final work. Our artist, in the meantime, finishes the paintings. She finishes all eight. She finishes all eight in secrecy, finds out this whole thing, and keeps her hair pink all the while. <laughs> and I say that, um, of course, with a funny sense, right? Because there's just so much psychologically that this narrator goes through, through this entire book. And it's amazing at the end, kind of what, how it wraps up in this neat, tight bow. And I found that to be something that's really um, fascinating and also fantastic, right? That this narrator could go through so much and still maintain herself and still maintain a semblance of herself and still finish her paintings, right? The job that she was there to do, despite all of these setbacks, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> character <laughs> so this in the way that oh, every fiction book is character driven right this is also a character driven book and it i think that you know there this the nuance in the main character um there are a couple main characters there are it's just so so well done there's so much complexity there this main narrator is really likable uh, despite things that, for example, I wouldn't personally agree with in this narrator's life, I still really liked her and I think that was a really uh, a sign of a really good move on Berlin's part is being able to make someone who is flawed and makes mistakes and makes poor choices sometimes um, but is still ultimately likable and still very clear and understandable in their internal dialogue and you realize that I've been um, calling the main narrator our, our artist or the narrator. Um, it's because the narrator is nameless. And that's something that I really grabbed onto during this entire book. And I find her namelessness to be so fascinating and so interesting. Um, and I honestly could not tell you if the artist, artist has a name that's ever said in this whole book. I don't think so. I think I would have noted it if she did, but her namelessness, this ability to be so specific and so whole a person and yet not have a name, I find to be so artful and so interesting. And that's the point that I would like to talk about with you guys in the comments. So if you have any words to say about this main narrator's namelessness. I would love to chat with you there. And that's at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under the show notes for this episode, in case you needed the reminder. And yeah, we have to live in her thoughts, right? She's the narrator, so she has to be well-developed in that sense. Um, but what I also liked is how well-developed the peripheral characters are. So 
um, her friend that she runs into, her friend's husband is well-developed, and the members of Pine City, even though they don't get a lot of screen time, so to speak, they are also quite well-developed. There's even a clerk at a market that she goes to in the city, and the ways that the clerk interacts with her also just so it's lifelike the amount of detail and the amount of information that Borland is able to put into this book. What I liked. So this is the part where I get to the scares and I'm gonna talk I think first ironically maybe about something I did not like, something that I felt was wanting in this book. Um, I don't want to give like unanimous praise to any book, but the one thing that I felt while I was reading at least that was wanting was there's the first part of the book, like the first couple pages is a gallery, almost like an advertisement or some sort of notice about Carrie's career, like a historiography of Carrie, a short one. And I felt like that was really boring. I did not like reading that. The, fir the first time I opened the book, it was this like gallery excerpt. Uh, I, I didn't think it was an effective move. That's my personal opinion. But then again, that's why I give every book I read 100 pages. <laughs> um, I think that in the end, that first excerpt at the beginning became super important. I remember going back and reading it several times as I was reading the book to try to figure out the mystery myself, so having it in a distinctive place I think was a good move. And the story did come full circle, and so it became an effective motivic device. By the time you got to the end of the book it was like, wow, and we end sort of with this big carry drama unraveling in front of us and that's where we started so it became effective in that way but for some reason the maybe just the starkness the dryness of it felt kitschy to me um, in terms of just the style of having this like art gallery historiography like couple paragraphs at the beginning it struck me in the wrong way um, but again, after you read the book, it becomes very important. So, couple thoughts about that. As I've been skirting around this whole time, I felt the level of detail in this book was so masterfully done. I'm so impressed, if you can't tell. The descriptions of, like, color. The author, or the narrator, has this obsession with color. And there's just like all of these different names for like greens and pinks that I never even thought to think about. But then you sort of start thinking about the differences between these colors and they come out and you get to live in the mind of an artist for a while. It's the same with setting, it's the same with the characters as I mentioned. And there's scenes in this book that I think at least, or I took to be just there to add more depth to the main character, to another character. And what I find astounding is that Borland easily gets away with them in the context of this book. The pacing and the thrill of the book. Insane. I read this book so fast. This is a long book, by the way. I'm not sure how long it is. Let me check. Um, it's upwards of 350. Er, no, it's around 350 pages, all told. And yeah, that's a longer book. Um, 
I know Dracula was long. There have been a couple other long ones, but yeah, I got through this book so fast and I did not feel damaged, you know, after reading it that fast. I didn't really um, get the effects of all of the information I was taking in. I think just because the writing is so well paced and so well done. Um, I really enjoyed this view into the art world. I'm a musician, so I find other artists' worlds to be fan is fantastic and very interesting. Um, and it feels truthful to me. It feels like this is the way things are sometimes in the art world, at least in the point in which um, Borland is writing, which is, uh, I believe, a couple decades earlier than the time that we're in now. Uh, it reminds me of the movie Velvet Buzzsaw from Netflix, if you've ever seen it. I'll put a review to the movie in the show notes for today, relevanceofliteratura.com slash notes under the notes for this episode. Um, but yeah, I really love that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, and uh, it really reminds me of that, this kind of deep dive with a little spooky thrill slash uh, twist. The writing, again, so good. There's such a good choice um, on Borland's part for narrative style. It suits her writing so well. Um, and yeah, the, the whole book, it felt almost dreamlike to me, especially this like uneven, there's a broader um, narrative structure, which we didn't get into, but the chapters and the parts are organized by which painting the artist is working on largely and so there's that whole aspect as well which I think really affected the pacing in some sense and affected like your ability to keep hold of these main major chunks of the book that were happening. I felt that was also a really uh, cultivated but interesting element. So overall I clearly have another new author that I will be keeping track of um, I will be reading her other book, um, which I believe is called I'll Eat When I'm Dead. And my scares for this book are a solid four out of five scares. This book was not scary to me, uh, so that's what's preventing it from getting a higher score, but it was just so masterfully done. Again, this is one of my top books for this year already. And that's saying something because we are pretty far through the year. Um, I will be reading this book again. I look forward to the time when I get to read this again. And I can't wait to keep up with Barbara Borland and what she's up to. Seems like a third novel in the future. About the author. I really could not find much about Barbara Berland, um, although I did link her website about me page in the description, which is really all that I could find of her. So she lives in Baltimore with her husband and her dog. That's from the about page. Um, she is really busy though. She does a lot of literary events, which I find to be really cool um, and very an author who's very much in the scene and does a lot of talks, does a lot of panels seems like. And that's also from her website, just looking at events. Uh, she has written these two novels, Fake Like Me and its predecessor to fantastic acclaim. She's just such a great writer. Young writer too. like. 
I now have another young writer to keep track of. I'm so excited about um, what Barbara Borland is going to produce next. So, although I could not find very much information about the author this time, she seems to live a pretty private life. Uh, I do look forward to he hearing and reading what she is producing next, and I hope one day to maybe attend one of the many events that she takes part in, because that also seems to be quite interesting to get her perspective on uh, various topical situations, not only in the reading world, but also in the writing world, rather, but in the art world. Thank you all so much for hanging in with me for this episode of Horrifying Classics Contemporary Horror. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I had a fantastic time reading this novel. As you all can tell, I really enjoyed it, and I hope you all do too if you end up reading along with the series. Until next time, have a fantastic rest of your day. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.